0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor in chief of the network. And as often as I can, I try to get back in front of the microphone and talk to somebody with a particularly interesting book, particularly if I know that person. And in this case, I do. I'll be talking to Jim Heinzen about his book, The Art of the Bribe, Corruption Under Stalin, 1943 to 1953. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks. Hi, Marshall. It's really good to talk to you again. Let me say that. We haven't talked in a long time. So could I
1: begin the interview by uh, asking you to say a few words about yourself? Sure. I'm a professor of Russian history at Rowan University, and I am a specialist in the history of Russia and the Soviet Union. I know th- I know that you are. That was for the benefit of our <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, oh, I was and funny. yes, no, Jim is a very esteemed historian yeah. of, of Russia in the Soviet <laughs> period. He's not saying any of that, but it's true and everybody knows it. So in an event, can you
1: tell us, now you wrote an earlier book, is that right? I did. I wrote a book called Inventing a Soviet Countryside, The Transformation of Rural Russia Before Collectivization. And uh, that was a book about um, the Soviets' attempt to drag the peasants into the modern world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. after the revolution and before collectivization. And it was it was a and it was that book that made you your first million. Is that right? It made me my first <laughs> yeah. seven hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah, okay, I
0: got it. And I didn't, I didn't know that it was a wasn't a bestseller. <laughs> so in any event, no, I'm sure I know that a lot of people read it, and it's a, it's a very highly regarded book. So can you tell us? why you wrote the book The Art of the Bribe,
1: Corruption Under Stalin, 1943-1953? I first became interested in this particular project when I was mugged in Moscow <laughs> yeah. in 1992. Sorry <laughs> and uh, I um, was in central Moscow, and I was uh, walking in front of a, an interist hotel right off Red Square, and I was surrounded by a group of children, and they... They robbed me. They grabbed my bag, my backpack, which had actually all of my notes from my entire year as a dissertation student in Moscow in that great year of 1991-92. And they grabbed from my bag. They tried to steal it. I held to my and they took my wallet out of my front pocket. So I, I was really angry and I went to the police station in Central Moscow, which happens to be in the same building as the first McDonald's, right <laughs> there on Pushkin Square. <laughs> so I went into the police precinct and I uh, asked to see, you know, the captain to report this crime. And he was very friendly, he had me sit down. We he brought me tea, he brought me cookies. We talked about policing in the United States versus policing in the Soviet Union. And then he told me that in order for the case to go forward or for anything really to happen, uh, I would have to pay. I would have to pay the police. I would have to pay prosecutors, and I would have to pay a judge if it got that far and It was a very open, direct sort of friendly request for a bribe and um, it really took me aback and I'd really never experienced anything like this and it made me really interested in this sort of kind of toleration for unofficial exchanges between citizens and uh, and bureaucrats that was prevalent after the collapse of the soviet union and as a student uh, a college student i was a college student in moscow in 1983 my senior year i went on an exchange i went to trinity college in hartford and i met a lot of soviet people and they they told me stories about about paying bribes and about the necessity to pay people off to get driver's licenses very often or in A lot of these relationships or a lot of times they came into contact with the bureaucracy. It was necessary to make some sort of gift or bribe to make anything happen. And um, as I was in 1991, 92, as I was writing my uh, dissertation and doing my dissertation research in Moscow, I began to think that wouldn't it be interesting to study bribery, which was completely taboo, which was hidden in Soviet periods. It was really not written about publicly very often. Like most crime, Soviet crime statistics were secret until the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty taboo, really, to write in the newspapers about it. So my idea was to try to discover, first of all, what the state thought about bribery, how the state understood this crime, then to look at who did it and why, under what circumstances. And then finally I was really interested in what in something that stemmed from this this mugging and shakedown by the police, which was this sort of culture of bribery, the culture of gift exchange. Or the the hiding of bribes in in gifts or other sort of disguised activities that I began to learn as I did research um, existed the kind of language the public depiction of the bribery of bribery and corruption in newspapers and in magazines and um, I I also was interested in Looking at bribery in that period when I thought that it would be the most rare, and that was the post-war Stalin period. Mm-hmm. And that post-war Stalin period is the the period when I began this project, and still is, that's the least known in all of Soviet history, after the war and until Stalin's death in 1953. Uh, it's least known because the press was... Completely censored. I mean, we really learned more from the Soviet press in the 1930s, which was the most violent and sort of overtly repressive decade in Soviet history. But the press was more open. Even the legal press wrote more openly about certain things. After World War II, there was like a, a freeze, uh, the, whether it's in the professional, uh, the legal press, or whether it's in the popular press, almost nothing written about it. We also have very few memoirs from that period. And of course the official discourse at the time really only talked about the, the triumph of socialism and the advance of, uh, of uh, the Soviet project. Mm -hmm. So just as a sort of detective and as somebody who's really interested in working in archives I thought that this project would be a really potentially fruitful project for a deep dive in those late Stalin mm-hmm. archives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, from what I gathered from
0: reading the book and then listening to you, the uh, Bolsheviks, just as background, their idea was to create incorruptible people who would give their all to the uh, uh, the socialist or a communist project. I take it they didn't succeed. <laughs> Is that Right.
1: I think that's right. Um, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> uh, I, I, and and we know this because by the end of the Soviet Union, I think you could say that, that bribery was basically the quintessential Soviet crime together with the theft of state property.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, so, part of the – go ahead,
0: Mark. The reason I was going to ask, so just to – in the 1930s, your book starts in 1939, but in the 1930s, was there a lot of bribery going on? I mean, again, just as a factual matter, and how do we know that? And then what was the state's, I mean, you mentioned these are your two big concerns, what you know, sort of the reality of bribery, and then what did the state do about it prior to
1: 1939? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a, um, a really interesting question. Part of it is the question of sources. So how do we know what was happening? Um, Now, what kind of sources did I end up using for the for the heart of this for the heart of this book? I mean, in the 1930s, certainly corruption was going on. But I do believe that in general, most Soviet officials were more idealistic uh, in the 1930s. And they also were more afraid. So in the 1930s, what you see is um, a hyper politicized environment whereby uh, or in which There are constant witch hunts against potential enemies of the people, potential Trotskyists. There's all this talk about vigilance against the fascist threat and really almost any kind of crime by a bureaucrat, even kind of the banal bribery and self-enriching sort of embezzlement of state property that uh, that is common to any bureaucracy. Stalin labeled this as counter-revolutionary crime, and people who, <clears throat> who stole or who took bribes were labeled uh, counter-revolutionaries or enemies of the people. And even these, these uh, crimes that had nothing to do with politics were rolled into counter-revolutionary crimes, and people were charged under this Article 58, the famous article of the Soviet Criminal Code, which was the anti-state activity crime, which Stalin used extremely liberally. Uh, and millions of people, as we know, were accused, uh, sent to the gulag, or executed. So bribery existed, but it was pretty much ignored by the police in the 1930s, which were focused much more on potential counter-revolutionary activity. Mm-hmm. And if somebody did take a bribe they, they in the 1930s, it wasn't really investigated as bribery. It was investigated very superficially as a counter-revolutionary crime. and These people were slapped with, say, 10 or 15 years in the gulag, or they were executed as being a terrorist of some sort. Um, the, after the war, um, things change. So Stalin has two main enemies in his life, I think we can say. One is Trotsky, and the second is Hitler. By the end of World War II, both of these – both of his major enemies had been defeated. Trotsky was – his supporters and alleged supporters were caught up and executed during the party purges of the 30s. Of course, many of them were not Trotsky supporters at all, but that didn't really matter to Stalin. And Trotsky himself was murdered with the famous ice pick in Mexico yes. City <laughs> <the> as, <laughs> as he sat writing a biography of Stalin. Yes. Uh, and you can go to that museum where he was killed and mm-hmm. see the blood-soaked manuscript on his desk today mm-hmm. if you wish to make that pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, Hitler is defeated in World War II. So it's really after World War II that we begin to see a new focus on the question of corruption in um, by the Soviet leadership, focusing both inside the party, that is party cadres, and in the state Apparatus, people who worked in various administration, administrations of state and ministries, that they become a target of a new type of um, of sort of sweep and crackdown on um, on not terrorism anymore, not these anti-state or counter-revolutionary crimes that pretty much burns itself out in World War II, and while still Stalin is very concerned about about political crime it's actually moved to the background with the defeat of the Nazis and the end of the purges and the end of the obsession with Trotsky. So we see after the war corruption being used, accusations of corruption being used as, uh, as a way of rooting out potential enemies against him, but also as a, as a sort of method of trying to clean up inside the party and inside the state apparatus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um,
0: I was going to say one of the things you pointed out is that uh, in 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 Soviet times everything was a campaign. So yeah, so they launched a campaign against was it corruption generally or just bribery? And what was the character of this campaign? Who ran it? And I think you point out that it was essentially secret, which is a a thing for a campaign to be. (laughs) (laughs) But in the Soviet Union, you know, these sense of things happened. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: There is a there is a very short um, campaign against bribery that is launched in 1946, and it's it's launched as many of these Soviet campaigns are um, on a pretext. And the pretext is that a letter was received from a, a party man in Baku in uh, Azerbaijan, which of course was part of the Soviet Union in that time, and he wrote a letter that made its way all the way to Stalin and to certainty. his right. Yeah, and to his right-hand man, Mm Zhdanov. And what it said, it complained about two things. It said that, I look around me, he says, and in Baku, I see that many people in the party itself are, first of all, they've adopted religion. They've become religious. And he thought this was terrible. And he thought that this was a sign of a kind of decay of ideological vigor inside the party. So that was the first thing that he complained about. And of course, as we know, during World War II, Stalin does ease up on the church and he eases up on uh, on on, um, on orthodoxy and on practice of religion is uh, a way of sort of allowing people to to to, to uh, take a little spiritual comfort, which maybe will help them fight the war a little bit harder. And the second thing he says is that there's another ideological problem that I see, and that is that party members are taking bribes that they're taking advantage of the chaos of the war to enrich themselves. And this letter makes it all the way to the top. And Zhdanov, who is the ideological chief of the party, and apparently in consultation with Stalin, no doubt. I mean, Stalin is always aware of these campaigns. They decide to launch a campaign against bribery. But the campaign is highly flawed. Uh, First of all, as you point out, it's secret. (laughs) So it's very difficult to have a campaign against corruption uh, and against bribery. But it's really interesting to look at the debates here. I mean, and this is a problem of all authoritarian regimes. Authoritarian regimes tend to breed corruption. And we see it in Russia today, and we see it all over the world, of course. Um, and these authoritarian regimes have have a, a problem. On the one hand, it makes it difficult for the state to implement its policies and um, and it also threatens the, le- the legitimacy of the state itself, because pe- people don't like to pay bribes. It's very unpopular at the local level. So the state needs, on the one hand, to sort of fight the corruption. On the other hand, it can uh, making a big deal about it can sow doubts uh, of the population in the regime itself. So Stalin faces this paradox. What do you do? Bribery in Russian history has always been considered to be like the worst crime the worst crime that an official can commit even though people participate in bribery and even though like for a lot of people it, it sort of pays to pay bribes it simplifies their lives there's uh, there's the convenience involved and say paying a bribe instead of waiting in line for an apartment for six months you pay a bribe and you get to the top of the line immediately but people still hate to pay bribes um so, um, the state has to, on the one hand, sort of show the people that it's cracking down. On the other hand, it can sow doubt among the population. You now, there's other reasons also why authoritarian states, some ways, tolerate bribery. Uh, you know, uh, it's cheaper than paying the officials, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you let them sort of feed from the population, and the Russian word there's a Russian word for this, it's called karmelinia, yeah. and it's a tradition that goes back centuries. That you know, the the autocracy rather than pay its officials would let them take sort of take fees from the population for doing anything, mm-hmm. and they would they would feed themselves. And then there's another tradition where they would pass that the low level officials would pass a a, a chunk of that up the hierarchy to their bosses and their bosses and their bosses in a sort of pyramid of corruption and a pyramid of payments. This also tends to solidify the bureaucracy. It it makes them loyal as Alexander Herzen said, the great 19th century Russian intellectual, uh, people who take people who take bribes do not rebel. Mm-mm and Stalin was keenly aware of that so in any anti-corruption campaign you have this tension and and in the Soviet case it's even there's even a greater i think another sort of layer of of paradox which is a problem for the regime which is in the Soviet Union as you point out bureaucrats are supposed to be uncorruptible mm-hmm. I mean, the revolution had happened in 1917. Here it is 30 years later, a whole new generation of Soviet people had been brought up under after the revolution. And they were supposed to be what they called no, new Soviet men. They were supposed to be completely loyal to the Soviet cause. They knew, of course, that bribery was a horrible, despicable thing that, uh, after all, only happened in capitalism. Bribery was a phenomenon of capitalism, according to the official line. Uh Capitalism and bribery were almost synonymous. After all, that's what bribery was in the West. It was, or in a capitalist country, it was the, it was the the elites taking money from the innocent people to solidify their position permanently. Permanently, capitalism was by definition the fleecing of the population by the uh, wealthy elites. So the Soviet Union was supposed to have have invented a new system in which bribery would be gone so to have a public campaign against bribery was in a way a concession that the soviet mission at this level had failed or at least was a long way from being accomplished and if you read the newspapers at the time and if you read even the you know internal correspondence normally what they say is that there are a few bad apples left there's a few people who take bribes but it's just the desperate final like remnants of this dirty capitalist class and and somehow the this capitalist mentality lives in their minds but they're on their way out so to to suddenly announce or to admit as some officials do in the internal documentation I found, to admit that bribery is, they use language like, it's an everyday phenomenon. It's paralyzing the government, the Minister of Justice says. It's paralyzing the government. It's totally tolerated by party members. Party members themselves are engaging in it. So um, Stalin clearly decides that it's not worth having a public campaign, and we see this in the correspondence that I found that originally in the original drafting documents of the campaign, they use this language of, of widespread corruption throughout the party and throughout the state. And by the time they have this little short document that is never released publicly, it goes back to this language of, well, there's a few bad apples and you know, corruption is basically alien to the Soviet Union. So it's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting paradox that in some way lies in the, at the heart of part of my book. Mm -hmm. So
0: Essentially, they just decided it was too costly to go after bribery. Yeah. For for many reasons. They had had multiple, almost too many reasons. They just couldn't go after it. They didn't like it, but there was nothing they could do.
1: It's also embarrassing. <laughs> it is embarrassing. Because it is. because they've just they've just incorporated these Eastern European states into the Soviet Union. They've created an outer empire. And what do they do with the outer empire? Well, they export the whole Soviet system yeah. to Bulgaria, to Romania, to East Germany. They didn't have to do it that way. But that's what they did. The Soviet Union has a five year plan, then Bulgaria will have a five-year plan. If the Soviet Union had purges and purges its elites, then Romania will have purges and purge its elites. So are they also going to export corruption? And this is what was on the minds of uh, some of the people at the top of the party. You can see them using this kind of language that our enemies, they say, will, if we talk about bribery, our enemies will use this against us. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't only Eastern Europe that was supposed to you know, completely adopt this new socialist way of life. But, of course, there are also competing with, you know, the the Americans and Brits and the Western capitalists. They're competing for these um, colonies. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, India is starting to decolonize or India is starting to uh, agitate for its independence, as are other Asian and African countries. And in this international competition with capitalism, to be talking openly about bribery would I think be embarrassing? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they, they did have a mechanism to go after
0: people that were taking bribes. There was the procuratura. There was the, the this is the prosecutorial office of the of the Soviet state itself, and its regional yes. delegates. And then they had, of course, police forces and systems of judges and law courts. But as you point out in the book, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this, they were taking bribes too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well I have a, a a few chapters actually on this. Um it's a again a bit of a paradox that the that you know, the Stalinist state is profoundly repressive. Before the war they arrest people by the millions for political crimes or imagined political crimes, social disobedience. After the war um there's a campaign against the theft of state property, as they call it. So uh, a couple of million people are arrested for stealing state property. Now in the Soviet Union, almost all property was state property. So um, all the harvest was state property, all the uh, anything that was in an office was state property, all the factories, all the industrial base was all state property. So for example, a person who like me is a state employee, and uh, takes a pen home from work. <laughs> you don't do that, do you? You don't do <laughs> no, no. That. no I never, work for the no. st- I work for the state of New Jersey, yes, and, and as I think you know. Yes, New Jersey's finally Incro- incorruptible. Is, what is. Yeah, incorruptible. Yeah, incorruptible, yes. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have been trained. I am yes. a model. Yeah. Uh, but um, anybody who you know pilfers something from work, whether it's a little bit of work material or lumber or bricks, after the war. Is has committed the crime of theft of state property. In 1947, Stalin drafts, or at least edits the final version of a new law. It's an ukaz, which is a decree which goes into the law code and supersedes all previous laws on theft of state property. And what it says is that anyone who steals in any amount, there's no minimum, uh, is subject to an, an automatic, mandatory, minimum seven-year sentence hmm. in of, of forced labor. Now, that means that they will go to a gulag camp. Anybody who's convicted of a crime of three years or more will go to a gulag camp, which means mostly the far north or the far east. So this means that and what you, what you see is hundreds of thousands of peasants who are starving after World War II. There's a famine in 1946 and 1947, a consequence of the war. Uh, people who are caught stealing food from the fields, chickens or bags of potatoes, are liable to a seven-year minimum sentence. At the same time, um, for the same reasons, poverty, people steal from factories. And also Stalin um, decides to incorporate some white-collar crimes uh, into the theft of state property decree, meaning that people who, for example, embezzle some money from work, they're also convicted under this law of June 4th. 1947. And what I found, you know, in addition to I think that this this June 4th 1947 law is very poorly known, um and I, I write about it. Um and um but I I think that a lot of historians and general public don't really know about how draconian this law was and the, the effects that it had on Soviet society by the time Stalin died, There were more people in the gulag convicted under the June 4th law than there were Hmm. for for the political crimes that are so well-known, the Article 58 crimes. Uh, The gulags are full of these so-called thieves of state property. But there's another consequence that I discovered that brings us back to this question of bribery, which is that – These cases flowed into the courts by the hundreds of thousands. They actually overwhelm the courts, and there's a lot of documentation about this, that the case files are piled in the hallways of the courts uh, and in the prosecutor's offices. There's too many cases to process. It's a really kind of incredible story of how the legal system is bogged down and clogged up with With these cases, which all stem from one law. Um, And what happens is it provides, most of these people are then convicted very quickly, and there's a, and then their cases, if somebody wants to appeal, they can bring their case to a higher court, to an appeals court. And what I found is that in these appeals courts, many judges were willing to accept bribes. To reduce these sentences or to throw them out completely, and so we do have that that sort of phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And um, some of these uh, cases go like right, in the Soviet Union. The Supreme Court is not the it's not a constitutional court as it is in the United States. It's the final court of appeals, and. We I mean, I found records of a number of judges in the Supreme Court who accepted bribes uh, for these theft cases, but not only there at various levels of of the appeals courts in the Soviet Union and not just in Russia, but in various republics of the Soviet Union. We see this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And again, you know, prosecutors as well could take bribes in these cases uh, police. Of course, I'm not saying that all Soviet judges or prosecutors took bribes, not by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think that's right. But I am looking at I, what I'm interested in is these relationships that do form, these negotiations that do occur during, you know, um, when bribes are passed, when they're offered, when they're accepted. Mm-hmm. So the courts are, I mean, it's just, you know, corruption is about opportunity. And there are tremendous opportunities in the legal system. Ironically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. repression, you know, repression leads to opportunity.
0: Yeah. Let, let me ask a question about this because I do wonder if this happens in the United States, I know with drug offenses and uh, occasionally I'm wondering if the people that were offering the bribes were in, uh, in a sense, kicking in an open door because there was resistance on the part of prosecutors and judges actually, to sentence people to seven years in the gulag for uh you know um stealing a couple of pencils from the office right because this does happen in the united states i mean there are judges and prosecutors who just won't prosecute things because they're like well there's a mandatory minimum attached here and i do not want to send jane uh off to walpole as it is in massachusetts for six years i just don't want to do that so we're just not going to prosecute that case because we don't (laughs) think this we think this law is inappropriate and it's a kind of nullification, an extrajudicial nullification of the legislature in this case. But I'm just wondering Absolutely. if there was, if you found in the verses any indication at all of resistance on the part of the procuratura or the or the, the judges themselves to to uh, sentencing people in this way.
1: Yeah, there is some resistance to doing so, and I actually think that's why some judges took bribes. Yeah, uh, because they um, in these cases because they. They believed that it was unfair to uh, send you know, a, a grandmother or, right. a, yeah. or, a, or a 16-year-old boy uh-huh. to prison for seven years. On the other hand, you know, Stalin became aware of this, and he – okay. um, well, what he became aware of is that a lot of judges didn't want to give seven years. Uh-huh. Um, did he like he, that? he specifically he did like it no i mean what what he liked what he liked was uh, maximum sentences and what he does is he makes it impo- there is a there is a, uh, a stipulation in, in the russian criminal code that says that judges have the discretion to give less than the mandatory sentence and for this law St- stalin suspended that oh, yeah. so there was no way that judges without themselves being accused of a crime there's no way that judges could give Less than the minimum sentence, mm, yeah. and this comes up, and this is discussed a lot, and um, yeah, Stalin anticipated, yeah. you know, <laughs> see, the yeah. the this uh, kind of extrajudicial, yeah, yeah. Uh, minimizing of sentence, uh, minimizing of sentences, mm-hmm. and forbade it. So no, you're absolutely right. Right. Well, let's move on a little
0: bit in the book because uh, one of the things that uh, I actually never gave a bribe in all the time that I was in Russia, the Soviet Union. I don't think I ever did, but I did have no, friends I didn't explain it to me. And one of the things they say is actually the uh, it's the um, it's the. It's the title of one of your chapters. The word "bribe" was never mentioned. I mean, my friend Igor was like, "No one ever said that word." Are you kidding? That was never. Ma- Are you kidding? Come on. And he explained to me how it was done, and so on and so forth, and how it looked like a gift. And can you talk a little bit about how it uh, how it transpired that people gave bribes? What the kind of culture of bribery was? The wink and the nudge, and so on and so forth.
1: Sure. Yes, I do have a, a chapter on this, and this is where I uh, this is where the title of my book comes from: "The Art of the Bribe." I was really impressed, and this gets to my sources, which I haven't talked about very much. The best sources that I have are investigations that were done of specific bribery cases. But really, in particularly, every once in a while, the procuracy would do a study of bribery because they were very concerned about it, especially bribery in their own ranks. And every once in a while, somebody would be sort of commissioned to study how is it that that, that this is happening and um, who's giving the bribes and why? And um, how come they had a sense that it was happening a lot more than they knew about. (laughs) It's, it's very difficult actually to expose bribery, right? Because bribery is, is almost always between just two people. It's a secret. It's not like theft, you know, it's not like murder. There's a dead body or you steal something and go to the warehouse and, Where did all the tractors go? They're gone. (laughs) So a bribe is just a hand-to-hand, you know, usually in a closed room, and people figure out different ways to disguise it. So the procuracy is trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? And, um, okay, so that's one really good set of sources are these internal investigations where the state is sort of studying itself and trying to figure out what's happening The second set of sources, which I think are my best sources, actually, are trials, transcripts of trials. And it's unusual to find trial transcripts in the Soviet Union. Most courts did not transcribe it. Rather, they wrote just a general uh, brief summary. But for particular sort of bureaucratic reasons, there were a number of bribery cases where the entire trial was transcribed. And these trials are extremely rich, They occurred in 1948, 1949, and the trials of judges and then the people who uh, offered the bribes and then the the intermediaries every once in a while, there would be some sort of brokers in between the giver and taker of bribes. And Soviet trials, they wouldn't wouldn't try just one person at a time. Very often you'll have 15 or 20 people on trial at once. Um, So judges – and these are normally tried by three judge panels, and the judges would ask things like, "How did you get away with this for so long?" <laughs> like, "How did you hide this? Uh, how come it took five years before we figured out that you were taking bribes and i mean what you what you see very frequently is that bribes were disguised in a gift culture, so Russia had a very as most countries do. Have a culture whereby it's often acceptable to give a gift to an official after the fact. Mm -hmm. So you go to the doctor in Poland and the doctor helps you and you you give them, you know, a a necktie or some food or some candy as a token of appreciation. And this happens, you know, I was going to mention one of the things
0: I do. I think I remember this well. And uh, on the first day of school in the Soviet Union, it used to be the case people would bring flowers to teachers. Yes. Everyone, everyone would.
1: <laughs> right. So at some you, point, if you didn't.
0: <laughs>
1: right. So at some point, if everyone does it and it's open, yeah. it's not a bribe, right? It's right. more like it's a not, tradition no. yeah. of, it's a gift giving tradition. Yeah. What's a little more suspicious is if right before the final exam, <laughs> uh, you know, a $100 <laughs> in cash or uh, a fatted pig or or a case of vodka uh appears on their doorstep with a signed note. So, but this this after the fact tradition of giving gifts is is very common, but um what the what you see is that um bribes are normally um a bribe is quid pro quo, right? So Russian has this tradition, as you know very well, of blot. Mm-hmm. So blot is a kind of, you know, use your, using your connections to do favors for one another within an So I have a friend who works at the shoe store. I work at the, uh, at the bakery. So I will help my friend get bread. I'll give him bread or I'll set some aside and he'll help me with shoes. And he'll set some shoes aside and we're longtime friends and we'll, we'll sort of make these swaps. This is not technically illegal. The actual this friendship is not illegal and it's an ongoing relationship, whereas bribery is defined in the criminal code as a quid pro quo. So you give something of value to someone. It's not based on a longtime relationship. It's normally a one off um, relation is a more, no, normally a one-off sort of donation that causes the official acting in their official capacity to pervert their judgment and to do something which they was either illegal or which was something that they shouldn't have done so what people try to do is to hide the bribe in the gifts and they use all different types of language for it um, there's a wonderful this where the quote from this for the that that is um the title of this chapter it says well the, the word bribe was never spoken Is somebody who's accused of giving a bribe and uh, she's in court when she says this and what she had done is her husband had a case before a certain judge and she found out where the judge lived and she went to the judge's house and she said oh my husband has a, a you know a case before you you know i hope that you'll i hope that you'll uh, you know, look at it very carefully. And then she gave him like all these toys mm-hmm. for her, for her children. And he accepted them. And in court, they ask her about this and she says, no, this wasn't a bribe. The word bribe was never spoken. How could this have been a bribe? <laughs> <laughs> and then they asked, and then they asked the judge and the judge had confessed to taking a bribe. And he said, of course the word bribe was never spoken. Nobody ever says the word bribe. Mm-hmm. They say gifts, they say meals, they say treating someone or entertaining someone. (laughs) And um, so you have this, this kind of culture. Um, And the word art of the, the idea of the art of a bribe incorporates this using these traditions, but it also is the sort of skill or sixth sense this developed whereby People learn, people start to figure out who will take a bribe. Mm -hmm. So sometimes this passes through word of mouth. You have these incredible stories about almost intelligence networks uh, um, in a given workplace where people will learn who will pass a bribe on, who will say, no, don't approach that person, approach this person. And the word spreads among friends and acquaintances who in a certain courthouse or who in a certain apartment agency who do the housing agencies who will take a bribe. And people also learn to sort of, you start small, give somebody a little token. And if they accept it, then they're more likely to go ahead and take something like a cash bribe. So there's a the case of a woman who, whose husband was being interrogated by a prosecutor and she was sitting in the hall. And once the interrogation was over, she, Approached the prosecutor, and she gave him a cherry she had a bag of cherries, and he accepted the cherry and she said i then i instinctively knew that he would take a bribe <laughs> <laughs> She showed up at his apartment that night with ten kilograms of cherries and five hundred rubles in cash mm-hmm. and and the deal to release her husband was sealed that way um so it's, it's interesting this just, you know, Russia has this tradition of, of, of sort of arbitrary, often corrupt, petty bureaucracies that people have to figure out a way to deal with. This goes back for centuries, of course. And I think that people in these situations develop ways of of dealing mm-hmm, of, mm-hmm. De- of negotiating. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Now, let me ask you this. Did anybody ever raise a stink cause they couldn't pay a bribe? Did they say, well, I happen to, you know, I'm, so my husband is uh, being prosecuted under article, whatever it is. He's going to get sent away for seven years. And the only problem I have is I can't pay the bribe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody else does it. That person did it. That person did it. I know that person did it. So what the hell?
1: <laughs> I haven't seen an example of that. Um, what you, what you, but what you do see, which is surprising is people complaining to the police that somebody took a bribe and didn't follow through on it? Yes, that's not <laughs> and, right. <laughs> and uh, this is this is actually the bribe taker's biggest threat, and you see this in these procuracy studies that the main reason why bribe, bribery is ever exposed is not that you know through police investigation or for some, through some kind of you know some kind of uh, informant. It's because the bribe giver is disappointed and goes to the police. Now, this is foolish in retrospect because giving a bribe is also illegal. Yeah. Uh, Many people, as I say in that chapter, um, didn't think that giving a bribe was illegal. Mm -hmm. They thought that only taking a bribe was. Mm -hmm. And the state worked hard to try to convince people and remind people that giving bribes is also against the law. So you see this in some of the cartoons in my book. And some of the illustrations, these cartoons are directly targeted at people who think that uh, offering bribes is is fine. People were able to justify they, they say I'm victimized by the bureaucracy. I'm poor. Um, sometimes you have to make the bureaucracy work the right way. You have to pay. The state said no. But what you see is people like, for example, I have the case in my book of a man who who um, who paid a bribe. And that day he went home. And wrote a letter to the central committee of the Communist Party complaining that he had to pay a bribe. And not surprisingly, this evidence was used against him in court when he was convicted of giving a bribe. And he was given five years in prison. But he was under the misimpression that, well, offering a bribe is not a bribe. It's just me trying to make the system work the way it's supposed to work.
0: Mm -hmm. And how did they handle trials of people that were actually uh – that were accused of, of bribery because those were done in secret somehow. Or, I mean, because again, the regime doesn't want to, uh, you know, it doesn't want to air its dirty laundry. How how did they handle those cases?
1: Well, there are, um, most cases are just, are just, uh, tried in the regular courts, Mm -hmm. but they're not covered in the press. And I assume that nobody really goes to them. So word doesn't get out. Um, But there are some cases which I describe in the final chapter of my book. Yes, talk about that. Yes. So in – I mean, one of the richest set of sources that I found are – is investigative material around what I call the affair of the high courts, which is a major scandal involving several Supreme Court judges uh, who were accused of taking bribes. These were judges in the Soviet Supreme Court, the Russian Republican Supreme Court, the Ukrainian Supreme Court, and the Georgian Supreme Court. And um, in each case, they were accused of taking bribes in these uh, cases of the violation of the June 4th, 1947 law on the theft of State property. Mm-hmm. So it was really amazing to find these cases. I mean, I I came across – a description of a couple of the cases in a a short description in Peter Solomon's fantastic book on Stalinist justice that came out in 1996. And he mentioned it in the context of, um, of this party being concerned about toleration for bribery, but he didn't really spend time on it. And I went back and I looked up this note and I found, you know, by pursuing different, Um, paperwork and paper trails, I found that there were 22 separate cases of Supreme Court judges that lasted over the course of four years. And they were accused of taking bribes in multiple cases in multiple instances. And about 300 people, so this would be about 22 judges, uh, about 20 judges and about 200 and Fifty or two hundred seventy five people who were accused of either giving bribes or being acting as intermediaries of the bribe uh, they were tried and there were all the judges were found guilty and they were given ten year terms mm. but I also found language I found documents in the Politburo in the sort of secret section of the Politburo, which contained secret decisions of the Politburo that they had decided to not publicize these trials, and to make sure that they were never written about in the press. Um, and the reason they gave is because they were concerned that it would undermine popular faith in the legitimacy of the courts, which I think actually was a pretty safe <laughs> yeah. bet. Yeah, that was a good idea. Um, so these trials went on over the course of a couple of years. And the transcripts are really revealing and really illuminating. And I talk about them a lot in my um in my book. Um, you see how judges try to defend themselves. It appears that some of the judges were not guilty, some were guilty, some admitted their guilt, others denied their guilt. Um the problematic sources, of course, Stalinist justice was not particularly objective. Very few people who are brought to trial are ever found. Not guilty. That's true, and in, in, in the Russian legal tradition, that is, they don't. They the prosecutors make sure that their case is very good before they bring it to trial, um, or that it's they believe that the judges will convict before they bring it to trial. But what you see here is a lot of interesting material on the everyday aspect of, uh, it's a everyday corruption on the way that judges, intermediaries, and bribe givers negotiated, dealt with each other. They would often meet outside of – that's amazing. I mean you don't think of American civil uh, Supreme Court judges meeting with petitioners. But in the Soviet court system, it was written in, in, um, in the Constitution and it's guaranteed in legislation that individuals have the right to petition judges, including Supreme Court judges, who would have office hours. They had office hours. <laughs> people could go see them, and people would travel from all over the country and meet with Supreme Court judges about their cases. So that's, that's part of the egalitarian um, sort of ideology and ideals of Soviet socialism. Any people have a right to petition anyone over anything yeah. and actually to meet with the people who are going to make be making decisions. But there's a downside to that which is that these judges who were mostly themselves also impoverished, they were not paid well. A lot of them were suffering from illness, had had their homes destroyed during World War II, uh, and uh, were themselves, like, although they were highly trained judges, were just socioeconomically slightly above the petitioners with whom they met. Mm-hmm. And of them became tempted to take – money on the side to decide cases.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I was going to ask you, you mentioned that they they, did try to defend, they they admitted to taking bribes and they tried to defend themselves sometimes in the transcripts. How did they do that? Maybe I misunderstood you.
1: Yeah, no, they, they, um, what they would do is they would try to justify their, um, their acceptance of gifts. So either would either they would say, well, this was just a gift. They would say that, um, you know, peasants or uneducated people is part of their culture. They give gifts to say, no, we'd be an insult to them. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a chapter on a judge from the Soviet Republic of Georgia, who is a really fascinating example of of this problem that many Russian affairs, Soviet officials felt. And um, and that is that they're sort of in between cultures. This Georgian judge, he was the Georgian representative on the Soviet Supreme Court, and people he he decided all of the courts, or all of the decisions that that came from Georgia. So if anybody had been convicted in Georgia and they wanted to appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, they would go to Moscow and he would hear their Uh, He would hear their case, and he would make the final decision on the case. But people found out who he was through word of mouth, and there's a very um, active and strong Georgian diaspora in Russia, and especially in the city of Moscow. And people would uh, find out that Judge Chichua, he was the judge, lived in a certain hotel. He didn't have his own apartment. He lived actually in a public hotel in Moscow people found out and they would go see him (laughs) and they would go to his door and they would bring him gifts. And in Georgian culture, it's very important to give gifts and you give gifts to, to officials. And it's also very important in Georgian culture to accept those gifts and to not accept them was a kind of social crime. I mean, it was like social suicide and it's not only Georgian culture. This is Mm -hmm. common to a lot of places which have these, which have these strong gift-giving cultures. But what happened is that as he told the court, as he was on trial and they said, well, you took these gifts. You know, you you took gifts from petitioners. What were you thinking? And he said, and he just kept repeating, I accepted the gifts. This did not compromise my judgment as a Soviet judge. I am a good Soviet judge, but I couldn't say no. Mm -hmm. It's not part of our tradition. To say, no, I simply couldn't throw them out on their faces, as he said. So he would say, like, well, they would give me alcohol, but I don't drink. So I would give the alcohol to someone else. Or I, you know, I took food, but I didn't eat the food. He never admitted to taking money. And I don't think he did take money. In fact, I don't think he was guilty. But the appearance of conflict of interest was definitely there. Yeah, You know, and other judges would would defend themselves by by saying it was a you know this was just a gift it was of a token of appreciation. If you say no, it's offensive. Um, and like there's this you know they there's some pretty elaborate justifications in the book, a doctor saying that you know it's peasant psychology as such that they must, <laughs> you know, they must give gifts. And, you know, you always have to say no first. If you say no, you know, twice, then it's OK, you know, because then it's you've sort of <laughs> you know, you've shown that you you're you're not being corrupted. It's just a token of appreciation. And Doctors, of course, were very often in, in high demand because doctors were very powerful people in the Soviet Union. They could give permission for people, for example, to not go to work,
0: right.
1: which otherwise would be a crime if you didn't go to work. And the Soviet Union had laws that. If you were – there were very draconian laws about if you were 30 minutes late to work or if you missed work, you could go to prison for that. So a doctor's excuse was important, and doctors were highly sought-after sought, out, uh, sought after people. Uh, they have a lot – they can keep people out of the army. So they, they would accept money sometimes, mm-hmm. and they would have to sort of justify it through sometimes very elaborate – and interesting uh, rationalizations that they presented when they were on trial. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. That's fascinating. So we're, we're running out of time,
0: but I do want to ask, what happens after 53? I know it's a little bit outside the temporal framework of your book, but can you tell us anything about what happens after Stalin dies in 53 to the bribery issue?
1: Yeah, well, that's an excellent transi- tra- trans- transition, actually, to my next uh, project. Ah, which I was is- going to ask about that. <laughs> <laughs> it just so happened. Uh, thank you for asking. My next project is actually going to look at some of these questions in the, in the late Stalin period and the final decades of the Soviet Union as, um, as bribery becomes even more sort of a, par- uh, a part of the fabric of everyday life. And in some ways becomes more tolerated. It's interesting, after 1953, Khrushchev um, does away with a lot of the most draconian elements of, this, of the Soviet legal system. but Khrushchev was also really concerned about corruption and, and black markets. And my next project is going to be a sort of a social history of Soviet black markets. Mm-hmm. In the last three decades of, this, of the Soviet Union, based again on archive materials, I'm actually leaving the day after tomorrow for Moscow to, to do some more work on this. But um, Khrushchev, you know, interestingly enough, actually introduces the death penalty for corruption, something that Stalin never did. So it's actually an innovation of Khrushchev to introduce into the Soviet legal code uh, that you could be shot for the most egregious cases of bribery and theft of state property, as well as speculation in foreign currency. So Stalin certainly had no qualms about shooting people for almost anything, but those people were convicted uh, under Article 58 of anti-state crimes. So they were convicted basically of treason. So even if they stole a lot, they they might be convicted of treason and executed. Stalin did not have the death penalty, technically for economic crime. It was Khrushchev who innovated in that sense. Khrushchev is very concerned about uh, the growth of um, massive black market schemes in industry and on the collective farms and in retail trade, where it wasn't just people sort of pilfering a little bit, you know, the occasional brick or the sack of potatoes. By the early 1960s, you you have schemes involving hundreds of people. Factories built inside factories with millions of rubles of uh, property being stolen, uh, fabric being stolen and used to make clothing to be sold on the black market, or you know, tractors being built on the side <laughs> and sold on the black market. And Khrushchev senses, and he's correct, a certain ideological flabbiness that is becoming more par- apparent among the party elites. The pr- you know One problem with fighting corruption, and we see this in Putin's Russia as well, is that if the elites tolerate it, it can't be fought. And if it permeates the legal institutions, which it does in Russia today as well, you really can't fight it. So Stalin, or rather Khrushchev, is particularly infuriated by the fact that more and more party people are being caught taking bribes and being involved in these theft schemes, and also that police prosecutors and judges are more commonly using their offices to enrich themselves. This process, So you have this kind of spasm, another campaign. This campaign is very public, by the way, Khrushchev's campaign, to wipe out Corruption and bribery in 1961, 62, 63, and people are being shot, and it is written about in the newspapers. And I do think that this is one reason why Khrushchev is ousted in 1964. That is, he is—he's an idealist. He's a true believer in sort of the purity of the party, at least at this level. And he is—you know—I think a lot of the party elites consider this to be a threat to their position a threat to their position. So in 1964, Khrushchev is ousted in a kind of mini nonviolent coup. Uh, well, it's nonviolent. It's not exactly mini when you oust this general secretary, yeah. but it's it's not like a Stalin-type thing where you shoot a 100 people. Khrushchev uh, retires peacefully to his home where he writes his memoirs and dies quietly uh, in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. So that's... That's my – I mean to answer your question and to talk a little bit about my next project, I'm really interested in in these kind of shadow society that that emerges. I call it the second society. In Russia, we call the black market the second economy mm-hmm. in the Soviet period. That's a term that's popularized by Gregory Grossman. Mm-hmm. I'm not so much interested in the economic side. I'm a social historian. I'm interested in the the nitty-gritty of how these these groupings worked within the planned economy. I mean, the black market was absolutely intimately tied together with the planned economy. They were they were not separate mm-hmm. without the without the black markets, without these shadow economies, the regular official academy would not uh, economy wouldn't have operated. So I'm interested in the in the sort of human side of the black market Um And in the the very, very sophisticated schemes that they hatched, including creating their own courts, creating their own police forces, creating their own distribution and retail networks that were intermeshed with the official networks. It's a story that really hasn't been told that I'm hoping to tell.
0: Well, I I, I look forward to um, reading it when it's done, which will be in about a week, right?
1: Uh yeah. yeah. Yeah, about a week. <laughs> I'm just going to pull an all nighter I should be able to yeah,
0: right. That'll do yep. it, definitely. Or maybe you can pay someone <laughs> to write it, a bribe. Uh, oh, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. interesting idea. I was thinking maybe you could go back and find that guy above the McDonald's <laughs> that you took, <laughs> that wanted to bribe, and you could interview him. He's probably still there. If he's <laughs> any good at all. So anyway, uh, let sure, me tell yes. yeah. Probably the Minister of Internal probably Affairs. probably is. So yeah. let, let me tell our audience we've been talking to, Jim Hineson, about his terrific book, The Art of the Bribe, Corruption Under Stalin, 1943 to 1953. Uh, Jim, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you, Marshall. I absolutely, really appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for listening, and we will talk to you soon.